Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are on location on the Grand Canyon, past the Roaring Twenties at Sand Dune Camp, or Upper Fence Camp. Today we had a wonderful day on the river. It was a bit cold. Went through the Roaring Twenties and Tiger Wash. A couple people got a lot of water in their boats, but we've had a good time, and we've still got a lot more river to go. I am on location with Dr. Tyler Norgren. Dr. Norgren is an astronomer at the University of Redlands in Southern California, and he specializes in variable stars. We're doing the GTS training trip, so that's the guide training seminar on the Grand Canyon. Dr. Norgren is here covering astronomy in the night sky on nights that aren't too cloudy. It looks like tonight might be a cloudy night, unfortunately, but I'll be interviewing Tyler or Dr. Norgren further downstream and hopefully we'll be doing the interview at night after the astronomy talk when there's no clouds in the sky and he can actually talk to you about the stars that he sees and some of the stars that you guys might see when you're listening to this interview up in Montana or wherever you are in the world. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on location and doing this interview with me. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. Thank you so much. And you're in my boat the first day. Fantastic opportunity to get a chance to meet you. In fact, this is one of the wonderful things about doing programs like this, getting to meet all the wide variety of expertise and interests and history that brought people here. So what other experts do we have on this trip with us? We have folks that are experts in geology, the formation of the Grand Canyon. We have experts in the water that you find in the Grand Canyon, where the surface water comes from and the water down below. We also have experts in biology, the plant life and animal life that you find down here. So really, it, it covers everything from the rocks to the plants to the animals to the sky above. Awesome. Dr. Norgren, Tyler. Where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? Well, I split my childhood between Oregon and Alaska. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and uh, a little kid was in Boy Scouts down there, and we'd go off to places like Mount Hood and the Cascade Mountains. And one of my earliest experiences with the night sky was being on a camp out on a lake near Mount Hood. And it was a clear, dark evening, no moon in the sky. And I just remember there being a, just a sky full of, a, seemed like a million stars. And then those same million stars reflected in the lake below. So it was like we were in the middle of this vast sphere of stars all around us. But after that, my father moved up to Alaska around 1980, and I moved up there soon thereafter. And so I got to experience the wonders of the Alaskan wilderness, going moose hunting and up to Denali and seeing glaciers. I had a backyard glacier, it seemed, up there. So it was a wonderful place to grow up. For somebody who was interested in astronomy, I remember at the age of five wanting to be an astronaut. I drew pictures of the Apollo astronauts jumping around on the moon, and I thought for sure that was going to be my future. So I had been writing letters to NASA from an early age, looking for, you know, how do you go about being an astronaut? What do you have to do? And they would write these letters back saying, well, you have to be a scientist or you need to study science and math. So that's what I did from the age of five onwards. 
And so by the time I was in junior high school, seventh grade up in Alaska, I had my own telescope. I pointed at the sky. And in the summertime, it never got dark. So I learned to really enjoy sunspots and follow the sunspots as the sun turned on its axis. The marvelous thing is that when we see the sun by day, it's just this blinding disk in the sky. But if you point a telescope at it and project the image of the sun, never look through a telescope at the sun. So if you project the image of the sun on a sheet or a plate, you'll see that the sun is this disk with these dark splotches on it. And they're cool regions on the sun's photosphere, its sphere of light, the surface that we see. And these cool regions are still thousands of degrees in temperature, but they're just cooler than the regions around, and so they don't give off as much light, and they look darker. And you can watch as they'll rotate into view and then slowly move across the sun's disk and rotate out. And so you can actually measure how long it takes the sun to turn on its axis. And it's something that Galileo first did 400 years ago. And as a kid in junior high, it was a marvel being able to see this. And really, since in Alaska it never really got dark at night in the summertime, it was about the only kind of astronomy you could do. It was a lot of fun. Then by winter, the darks of winter, you'd only get about a couple hours of sunlight. And so there was lots of time to see the stars, but it was just really too cold to go out. I tried once. I found the Orion Nebula with my little Sears telescope. And once I confirmed it was the Orion Nebula, I quickly packed it in, went back inside, and I don't think I ever pointed that thing at another star again when I lived in Alaska. So when you look at the constellation of Orion, it's one constellation that a lot of people can recognize. You have these three almost equally bright stars that make up his belt, and then you've got four stars around. It's the bright orange Betelgeuse in the upper left, his upper shoulder, and then the bright blue Rigel down to the right. And hanging off of the belt are these three little stars that are quite faint in the middle one. It looks sort of fuzzy to the eye. But when you point a small telescope or even a pair of binoculars at it, what you see is that it's not really a star at all, but rather a giant cloud of gas, interstellar gas and dust. And new stars are born there. And when those new stars are born, they light up the cloud out of which they formed. And so you have this bright little cloud nebula that you can see for yourself. And it's an absolute delight to look at with a small telescope. And it's one of the things I enjoy showing students now. And I first saw it when I was probably 11 or 12 years old up there in Alaska. And well, even in the light polluted skies of Los Angeles, near where I'm, I'm now a professor, still you can kind of make that out. And so it's one of those few constellations you can see almost anywhere. But growing up in Alaska, really the big thing that was special for me was seeing the aurora, the northern lights, and the sun goes through this cycle, this 11-year cycle. Every 11 years, it gets more of these sunspots. And when there's more sunspots, there's more eruptions of charged particles, protons and electrons off the surface of the sun, and they stream outwards through the solar system. And when they hit the Earth, they interact with our magnetic field, and they, they spiral up towards the North Pole or down towards the South Pole. And you get these amazing aurora, this, this display of light that's given off by the gases in our atmosphere. And as a kid standing at the bus stop in an Alaskan winter, I could look up and you'd see the aurora just dancing all over the sky above. And it was just one of the most intense, amazing experiences, memories that I have from my childhood in Alaska. And unfortunately, living down here in Southern California, I don't get to see them very often. But every so often, places usually in a national park where it's dark, I still get to get a chance to see that. And I did both down here in Grand Canyon last June, June of 2013, and then again up in Yellowstone later that same summer. It really brought back my childhood to me. Wonderful. Dr. Norgren, tell us more about where you came from in Alaska. 
take us there and what it was like. You said it was too cold to go outside. And then for those listening who may not know why the sun does not come out in the wintertime and why the sun stays out in the summertime, could you explain that to them, please? So where I lived was just north of Anchorage, Alaska, the largest city in Alaska, which at the time meant it had maybe a quarter of a million people, which actually is quite a bit. But then if you imagine that it was a full day's drive before you reached any other city and that other city was just really a town in any other state in the country, it was very isolated. And certainly in the dark depths of winter, when you had hardly any light at all, it seemed as if you were in some distant outpost on the edge of the civilized world. But it was a marvelous place to grow up. I had a canoe rack on my car when I was in high school. I would take my canoe out and I'd go paddling in lakes. And my father and I, when I was young, we would get out, rise up early in the morning in the summertime, about 2 a.m. when the sun would be rising. And we'd get out onto lakes and just spend an entire day paddling and portaging from one lake to the other. And so it was one of the places where I really began to enjoy the outdoors and looking at our world as as if it was a, a planet and a big family of planets, all the amazing things, the mountains, sheer giant mountains that were snow-capped even in summertime. And these mountains, you know, they were formed by geology. The, the activity of the earth would raise these enormous mountains up. And then you had the inlets where the ocean would come in. And because of the action of the moon, we had these tides that were a phenomenal. You could have the level of the ocean rising and lowering by about 20, 30 feet over the course of a day. And so you could watch as the tide would come in the inlet, and as it would come in, you had this wave that would just move up the inlet. And when the tide would go out, again, there was this other, it was called the boar tide, would pass out and would just leave behind these mud flats. And so as a, a kid, I just thought this was a marvelous place, living on the edge of the world in summertime. You'd have these days that would last forever. And the reason why the length of the day changes so much is because the Earth is tilted on its axis. And depending on where you are, which hemisphere you are, for those of us in the northern hemisphere, well, our North Pole always stays pointed towards the star Polaris. But when we're on the side of the sun where pointing towards Polaris means the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun, well, then we have summer. The sun is high overhead and the days last forever. Six months later, when the Earth goes around to the other side of the sun, we're still pointed towards Polaris, but now when we point that direction, we're pointing away from the sun. And so the sun is at best low in the south at noon, and the days are very short. And these seasons are exactly opposite for those in the southern hemisphere. And when you're living someplace, say, near the equator, or maybe in the lower half of the continental United States, those changes aren't really profound. But when you get up to, say, someplace like Montana, in the middle of the summer, it doesn't get truly dark until, say, 11 o'clock at night. And then imagine going all the way up to Alaska, where the sun would only just be setting at midnight. And so it wouldn't truly get dark, well, ever, because the sun would come back up at 2 a.m., and so, you know, imagine you're a teenage boy, you're living up there, you got a job in high school, you get off at midnight, and then you go out with your friends and you play baseball till all hours of the morning. And by the time you finally stagger on home, the birds are tweeting, the sun's coming up at 2 a.m. Well, for me, it was a magical place to grow up and be a kid. It was really being able to see those changes, the lengthening day, the profound change in where the sun would rise and set, and the aurora overhead, those were one of the things that really set me on the path to being an astronomer. While I had wanted to be an astronaut, it was really learning about the science and the changing aspect of the planet that made astronaut change into astronomer. 
well, it's what I've managed to do now. And so in a way, I've lived my childhood dream. Tyler, can you tell us about what you see right now and also relate it to what you told me you've seen via telescope on one of the moons of Saturn, the Grand Canyon of one of the moons of Saturn? So where we are right now, we're along a bend in Grand Canyon. The Colorado River is cutting down through this limestone that's all around us that's been stained red. And this limestone makes these sheer cliffs that look like they must go up about a thousand feet, perhaps, above us. And so we're sitting in this sinuous, sheer-walled canyon perched on a little raft of sand that's just hugging one shoreline. And as we're sitting here, we hear the water all around us as it rumbles One of the things that we see and hear is the sound of the river running over rapids as the water encounters stones that have fallen off the sheer cliff walls around us. And those are what give rise to rapids. And they're also what helps form the canyon. It's the reason the canyon keeps getting wider and deeper with every year that passes. And it's something we take for granted here on Earth, this liquid water that falls from the skies, that pools together to make streams, and the streams that run down into rivers that eventually flow to the ocean. We are the only planet in the solar system where liquid water does this. Mars may once have had water, and certainly there's the evidence everywhere that water once flowed across its surface, but now it's too cold and it's too dry. So the water that flowed there is really only historic. There's still water there, definitely, but it's all frozen beneath the surface. But if you want to go somewhere else in the solar system where you can still find a liquid that's causing lakes to pool and seas to form on the surface, the place you have to go is one of Saturn's moons. It's the moon Titan. Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system. It's larger than planet Mercury, and it has a thick, dense atmosphere, opaque atmosphere of methane around it. Until 2005, no one had ever seen beneath the clouds. Well, when you think about ancient maps of the early age of exploration, there were these blank regions where they said, you know, here be giants or, you know, there be monsters. And in a lot of ways, Titan was that. Until just 2005, we had no idea what was beneath the clouds. Well, currently... There is a spacecraft called Cassini. There's a joint project between NASA and the European Space Agency. And Cassini has been in orbit around Saturn since around 2005. And one of the things that was on the Cassini mission was a probe called Huygens. And this was a probe that Cassini released to drop down on a parachute through the clouds of Titan in order to see what was beneath. And as Huygens did that, the cameras captured an amazing landscape beneath those clouds, a landscape that showed what looked like river channels cut through the rock, through the landscape, and pooling down into low-lying regions with shorelines. Since that time, the Cassini spacecraft has had radar that it can bounce through those clouds and to really map out in much detail the larger topography. And what we see on Titan is that at the poles, there are actually seas and lakes. Liquid is there at the surface. We've even seen sun glinting off of those surface. And by looking at that glint, we can even make out ripples. But it's not water. It's not liquid water that's pooling into lakes and seas and forming rivers that runs down to those seas. But rather, it's liquid methane. The atmosphere is an atmosphere of methane, and out of that methane, methane rain falls onto the landscape. That methane rain 
pools together to form channels that cut its way through the landscape, through the bedrock, to form rivers that flow down into these seas. But here's the other amazing thing, especially when I look around me at the limestone and the sandstone all around. On Titan, that bedrock is not rock at all, but rather it's water. It's the same water that I'm seeing here, except there, where Titan receives a hundred times less light and heat than we do. That water has frozen so solid that it is the bedrock. So imagine a landscape, perhaps very similar to what we see here in the southwest and around Grand Canyon and Lake Powell and Lake Mead, but a landscape where it's the water that forms the rock and it's the methane that cuts through that rock to make canyons and channels and rivers and large lakes and small oceans. And so that's the strange yet oddly familiar landscape that we find in the solar system today. And it's something we've only known about really for the last 10 years. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. We are on location on the Grand Canyon with Dr. Tyler Nordgren. We are past President Harding Rapid at the next camp right after on River Left. Dr. Nordgren is an astronomer at the University of Redlands in Southern California. He specializes in variable stars. Dr. Nordgren, please tell us what you see in the sky right now. It is night. The moon is a thin crescent three days old, and it just passed over the cliff, so now you can actually see the stars pretty well. And I would love for you to tell us what you see right now. So as I'm sitting here on the beach, the Colorado River is looping by in front of me, and we're at an enormous bend in the river, and so we have a giant wall of red wall sandstone on the right, and then a loop in the river gives us a wonderful clear gap looking almost due west. And in that gap, I see Orion. In fact, I can see the stars of Orion reflecting down in the water beneath. And it's just sitting there as if Orion the hunter has somehow just fallen off of the south rim of the Grand Canyon and is tumbling into it. And his faithful dog, Canis Major, Sirius, the dog star, is still up there on the south rim, wailing as, well, dogs are smart. They're not going to go off the rim after their owners. But as I sit here and I look at Orion, we have an amazing star-filled sky overhead. And as the moon gets lower, it's hidden to our eyes right now behind the rim, but I can still see its light lighting up the sky. But as the moon gets lower, the sky is just going to keep getting darker. And then we'll have an amazing number of stars that finally come out. But at the moment, the moment there's enough stars visible so that it, it looks like the maps that you see on display at a park visitor center, one of those wheels that you can take out and look up at the sky and, and see all the major constellations. But for me, my university and where I live back in Southern California, 
This is far more stars than, than we ever see at this point. I think I can count all of 12 stars when I'm back home. So just to even see this with the amount of moonlight is, is quite stunning. And as I'm looking at Orion, I look upwards, and right off the top lip of the canyon, I see the brightest thing in the sky, and that's the star. Well, it's not a star at all, actually. It's, it's Jupiter. Jupiter right now is passing in front of the constellation of Gemini, the twins. When you look up and you spend enough time looking at the stars, you can notice these wandering stars, these rogue stars, these, well, they're planets, as they slowly make their way through the constellations. And the thing that's lovely about finding a planet is that our solar system, the planets in our solar system, they all orbit the sun in a plane, a, a flat disk. And so since we sit on a planet within that plane, when we look out from our planet, we see all the other planets, including the sun and the moon, all traveling along a common band around us on the sky. And that band is called the ecliptic. And the constellations that the ecliptic passes in front of, well, those are the constellations of the zodiac. And so there's 12 of them, and they're the constellations that we've all heard of. Taurus and Gemini and Cancer and Leo and on and on around the zodiac. The way these constellations got tied into astrology is that every month the sun sits in front of one of those constellations. And so for every month there is one sign of the zodiac that isn't really visible. And that is the constellation that is your sun sign. When you say that you're a Gemini, what you are saying is that when you were born, supposedly, at least when this system was first developed a few thousand years ago, Gemini was the constellation the sun sat in front of on the day you were born, and supposedly that means something, uh, but in reality it means diddly. Uh, but that's me as an astronomer. I only care about those things that actually work. Right now, Jupiter's passing in front of Gemini. Since Jupiter takes 11 years to go once around the sun, and there are 12 signs of the zodiac, then approximately every year I see Jupiter in front of a different sign. So last year it was Taurus. This year it's Gemini. When Jupiter's always had a, it's a planet I've always loved. When I was a kid back in the 70s, it was part of the golden age of NASA's space exploration. In 1976, the twin Viking orbiters and landers got to Mars, and so we first got to see what the surface of Mars looked like, and frankly, it was actually kind of boring, because NASA chose a really boring place to put the rovers down, because they cost a lot of money. You didn't want to go and land your lander on the edge of a Grand Canyon, because if you were off by a few feet, a stunning view turned into a tragic view. So instead they landed on a flat plane, but it was a plane that looked like Arizona, red rocks extending to the horizon. So I could imagine myself out in Death Valley or Arches or northern Arizona, and it probably looks very much like Mars does. And so that was in the 70s. And then a little later on, you had the Voyager spacecraft getting to Jupiter. And so we had our first view of this giant king of the planets, 300 times the mass of the Earth. And for Jupiter around it, you had four large moons. These are the Galilean satellites that Galileo first discovered 400 years ago. And, and we found that unlike our own moon, that's gray and boring and just being pockmarked by craters eon after eon, 
The moons of Jupiter were fascinating. They were amazing places where things were happening. The innermost moon, Io, Io had volcanoes. It was yellow and orange from sulfur, and with enormous volcanoes erupting all over it, sending huge plumes out into space and lava flows across its surface. That was an active place. It was an amazing place, and it was something that we hadn't really anticipated. Europa, the next moon out, was an icy world, but it was a completely smooth world covered in cracks, like you'd taken a glass ball and hacked it with a hammer. And what we now know to be the case is that beneath that layer of smooth ice is an ocean. There's more water, liquid water, on Europa than there is in all the oceans and all the rivers, even the Colorado, here on Earth. So when we think about life elsewhere in our solar system, we think, well, maybe there's something on Mars, maybe deep down in the rocks. And when I look up at Jupiter, think about Europa, and maybe in that world ocean up there, maybe that there'll be life beneath the ice crust up there somewhere. These are the planets. These are the planets that were just being explored when I was young. Like Dr. Norgren said, we're sitting here on the Colorado River, which cuts through the Grand Canyon. We are past President Harding Rapid on the first camp on River Left, and we're doing a guide training seminar trip down the Grand Canyon. So we're here with Dr. Norgren, who is an astronomer. We're here with a couple of geologists, hydrologists, botanists. Later on, we're going to have uh, snake specialists. We're also here with members of the Navajo and Hopi and Supai tribes. And we're learning a lot. All of us are learning so much. But one of the things that you pointed out on night one, pretty much, Dr. Norgren, was to protect the night sky, to protect darkness, because you did base yourself in Flagstaff for a while where the night sky was not as dark as it is here, but definitely a lot darker than it is in L.A. where you are now. So tell us about how we can protect the night sky and protect our pupils for ourselves and those around us so that we can enjoy stars. Where I live, I can see all of 12 stars in the sky. And for the majority of people on Earth, roughly 60% of U.S. and European people no longer live someplace where you can even faintly make out the Milky Way, uh, let alone a, a sky full of stars. So there's a number of things that we can do. The most important is that on our homes, we install shields or that we only use light fixtures on our homes that allow light to shine downwards. And we need light to be safe. Let's be absolutely clear on this. We do need light to be safe. But that light needs to shine downwards onto streets. It needs to shine downwards onto our car doors, onto the doors of our house to allow us to see the sidewalks, to see oncoming pedestrians. The light that shines above the horizon, the light that shines upwards, all that light does is bounce around the sky to light up the sky. And in fact, where I live in Los Angeles and for most cities, we light the sky almost as bright as daytime so that only a few handfuls of starlight can make through. The other thing that happens when light shines upwards and outwards is that that light shines directly into our pupils. And so it causes us to lose our night vision. And so in fact, we see less. And it's the strange fact that more light isn't better light and it isn't making us safer because it's creating a glare that actually prevents us from seeing shadows and being dark adapted. 
I mean, right now, sitting here on this, this sandbank, looking around, I can see things perfectly fine. But that's because I've allowed myself to have a good hour of not staring into any bright lights. And I've become dark adapted. So the number one thing is to make sure that lights only shine downwards. The second thing that you can do is put in a lower wattage light bulb. And the reason for this is we don't need as much light as you might think. A very low level of light can be enough not to ruin your night vision and still allow you to see what's out there. Really bright lights are just going to create very dark shadows. And so, well, if we're afraid of bad people, we've created these dark shadows where the bad people can hide. So lower wattage light bulbs, less dark shadows, increased night vision, you can actually see more. Other things I'd recommend, put timers. If you're worried about, say, a car in your driveway, put a timer so that when you come home at night, that light is on, you can get to the front door. If you put a motion sensor on, then if anyone comes around later that night after the light has gone off because of the timer, if anyone should come around, the light will come back on. It'll scare away potential car thieves. More likely, it'll scare away the raccoon that's come around. So in this way, you're using light efficiently and effectively. You aren't hiding the light of the stars and you aren't paying an exorbitant electric bill to simply light up bats in the undersides of spacecraft. By doing this, we can help save the sky and we actually become better neighbors. Your light from your driveway will not be shining into your neighbor's bedroom and same thing with theirs. And so you all become better neighbors, not grumbling at one another about having your bedroom lit up like daytime. So it actually makes everyone better and allows us to see more. And so it's a win-win situation. We save money, we save electricity, we save the sky, we save our relationship with our neighbors around us, and we get the stars back again. A win-win, win-win situation all the way around. And another couple of things you can do when you're camping or on the river is using the red light. Exactly. Red light doesn't hurt your night vision. The receptors in your eyes, the rods, that are sensitive to very low levels of light are only sensitive or primarily sensitive to sort of the blue-green wavelengths. So with red light, when you're out camping, if you've got a headlight that's got a red light on it, use that because that red light will allow you to see more. It'll allow you to make sure you don't fall off the sandbank into the river, but it will not hurt your night vision as much. In the same way, when it comes to, say, lighting up streets, the orange lights that many of us have on our streets are actually pretty good because those orange lights don't hurt our night vision as much. A problem that's coming along is that people are moving to replace those street lights with LEDs. And those LEDs have a very blue-white color to them. And that very white, blue-white spectrum actually is very, very bad for people's night vision. It creates a lot of glare really hurts night vision and the reason the sky is blue is because the gases in our atmosphere scatter blue light so the more blue light we put into our street lights the more actually you'll get light scattering around at night and the worse that light pollution becomes so leds can be actually very energy efficient but absolutely terrible in every other respect both for night vision for glare and for light pollution. 
So one of the things that the International Dark Sky Association, a nonprofit advocacy group to help save the night sky, is proposing is that we don't move to these blue-white LEDs, stay with more warm color, yellow-orange, warmer color LEDs, and they will not have the same problem. Other things that one can do is when you're out, say, camping at night, if you do have red lights, keep them not on your head. I mean, one of the things that happened in the last few years is everybody has a headlamp. When you have those headlamps, you have them on your head, the light shines straight outwards and they shine straight into other people's eyes. And so once again, you've created glare that keep people from really enjoying the beauty of the sky out here. So when you are out in the wilderness, put the headlamp around your neck. The light shines down, lights up the ground where you need it, and it won't blind everyone else that's around you. We are on location on the Grand Canyon, floating down past Moab rock formations on either side of us. We are around River Mile 46 right now, approaching Willie Taylor Camp, Duck and Quack Camp. We're on location here, floating in an 18-foot raft with Dr. Tyler Nordgren. Dr. Nordgren is an astronomer with the University of Redlands in Southern California, and he specializes in variable stars. Currently, we're doing the GTS Grand Canyon Guide Training Seminar trip, so Dr. Nordgren is acting as the astronomer on this trip. We're also here with geologists, hydrologists, biologists, botanists, and later on downstream we're going to have a lot of other people joining us. Dr. Nordgren, I'd like to talk to you about the universe and how old the universe is. Uh, one of the things that's absolutely wonderful about floating down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon is that with every mile that you go down the river, you go back in time. When we started out the trip, we were looking at the Kaibab limestone, which was only about 250 million year old rock. But now we're getting farther and farther down and eventually, shortly here, we'll be going down and seeing rock go past us that's billion years old. And in a lot of ways, that's a little bit like what astronomy is like. Everything that we see in the sky at night is from light that's come to us from a distant star or distant galaxy. And light travels at a finite speed. And so when you look out into the sky, everything that you see, you see the way it looked a little bit farther back in time. And the farther out in space you look, the farther back in time you see. Up here in the northern hemisphere, on a clear, moonless night, you look up, the brightest star, at least in winter, is the star Sirius. And Sirius is nine light years away. And that means that light from Sirius has taken nine years to get to us. So you see that star as it was. The light going into your eye, for instance, that we saw last night, left that star nine years ago. And as you look farther out, like the nearest galaxy, the nearest other island universe beyond our own Milky Way is about two million light years away. And so we see the Andromeda galaxy the way it looked two million years ago. And when you start looking at galaxies and the starlight coming from those distant galaxies even farther away, there's a pretty good chance that that star may no longer even exist. And so you're seeing ghost light, the light from stars that no longer are even there. And we now know that by looking farther away and farther back in time, that the oldest galaxies came into existence soon after the universe did, which appears to be about 14 billion years ago. 
So we live in a universe that was first formed 14 billion years ago and has been expanding ever since. And we see that when we look at those distant galaxies, the light from those stars, the light from those galaxies is what's called redshifted. As the light moves away from us, the wavelengths get stretched out. And so we see everything looking a little redder than it otherwise should. And that tells us that the galaxy is moving away from us. In fact, it's the universe expanding, carrying those galaxies away from us. And when we look at galaxies that are farther away, they're traveling faster. And the galaxies that are nearby are traveling less fast. And so that tells us that it's an expansion that we see. There's more space expanding between us and the distant galaxies than between us and the nearby. And so those distant galaxies go faster. And by measuring how fast they're moving, we can figure out how long it's taken since we were all at essentially one spot all together, the entire universe and everything in it. And that tells us that we first formed about 13.8 billion years ago. But when we think about these other planets and what we can learn about those other planets from studying our own, we learn about the geological processes that make planets. And there are four main geological processes. There's tectonics, the things that give us the plates, the faults, the earthquakes. Where I live in Southern California, I can see the San Andreas Fault from my office window. There's also erosion. It's water and wind eroding away those landscapes, eroding away the mountains built by those tectonic forces. In addition, we also have volcanism, the act of making volcanoes and lava flowing out across the surface. Here in Northern Arizona, we've got the San Francisco peaks. They are volcanic mountains and all around them are volcanic cinder cones. So you have volcanism and tectonics that build things up. You have erosion that wastes things away. And then the fourth thing is cratering, impact cratering. It's the one astronomical feature, the one geological process that comes from above as opposed from coming from inside the planet. And out here in northern Arizona, we also have an example of that. We have meteor crater just outside of Winslow, Arizona. And that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind. When we look out at, say, the moon, the nearest astronomical body to us, we see a body that has very few of these tectonic, volcanic, or erosional features, but definitely a lot of craters. In fact, the entire moon is covered in craters. Just as many objects have hit the Earth as have hit the moon. The fact that we don't see all those craters anymore is because we have these other geologic processes, that we have the erosion that creates Grand Canyon, that we have the volcanism that made the San Francisco peaks, and that we have the tectonics that gives rise to the earthquakes and plates. So we are at danger, just like any other body, of being hit by an asteroid or a comet, and we see the record of that on the moon. So we know it's happened before, and it will happen again. And one of the ways that we can learn about that danger is by looking out into the universe with our telescopes and trying to determine how many asteroids, how many comets are there out there and what orbits they're on. And that's an ongoing area of, of research, is trying to find out what the danger is, looking for these near-Earth objects that one day could affect all life on Earth. Because again, it's done it in the past. 65 million years ago, we had a very unlucky day when an asteroid or a comet hit the Earth off the peninsula of Mexico and created a worldwide firestorm, tsunamis that threw dust and dirt up into the atmosphere to rain back down, raining, firing, burning rock 
that landed all over the earth, set global fires in forests at the time, put so much soot and dirt into the atmosphere that after that initial fiery furnace day in which anyone standing on the surface would have felt oven-like temperatures as all this rock rained back down around them. After that, thanks to the soot and the dirt thrown up in that impact, we had years without a summer, perhaps a year without any sight of the sun at all. And so anything that survived that initial impact froze. What plants survived died. What animals survived that fed on those plants died. The only life that survived was the life that could burrow and go into hibernation, that had hid food away deep underground, and that could live those one to two years through those bitter, bitter cold. And one of the interesting things about the study of post-impact, what we now call nuclear winter, is the people that did the studying of what an impact could do to our climate then applied that to our understanding about what life would be like after a nuclear war. This was all research that took place during the Cold War, and it gave rise to the term nuclear winter. And so the devastation that was unleashed upon the Earth by natural causes, by an asteroid, is a premonition of what life could be like on the Earth if we should ever have a global thermonuclear war. It's not a good thing. The dinosaurs didn't survive it, and we probably wouldn't either. And so these are the things I think about when I look up in the sky at night. It's a beautiful, wonderful place full of unimaginable beauty, but there's danger there as well. And that's just the universe in which we live. So if you manage to survive the firestorm, one of the other dangers, especially because the impactor that hit and created the Chicxulub crater off the coast of Mexico also hit in the water, it would have raised tsunamis. So there would have been waves of heat, waves of fire, and waves of water sweeping inland. Global devastation on a truly unimaginable scale. It's no surprise that the only life forms that survived after that were those small mammals that could burrow deep, deep into the mud, the reptiles that could be down underneath in the cool mud and dirt underneath shallow swamps and streams. They alone survived. Everything else was devastated. And now, you know, when we look around at the civilization that we have, could we actually do any better than the dinosaurs did? Could we survive if perhaps all that was destroyed was our electrical power system? In a lot of ways, we are even a more precarious species than those dinosaurs were. We are much more dependent upon our technology than they were. We are on location in the Grand Canyon floating downriver with Dr. Tyler Nordgren. He is an astronomer at the University of Redlands in Southern California. Now, if you are someone who, you know, it's just on your bucket list to learn how to kayak or to go out there and paraglide or to travel the world, do it now. Because Tyler was just speaking shortly about a comet or an asteroid that hit the Gulf of Mexico and formed the Gulf of Mexico and sent up huge fireballs into the sky which rained over Earth and heated up the Earth into oven-like temperatures. And then all that soot which came from that blocked out the sun so that we went through two to three years of no sunlight coming through so the Earth would be very, very cold. Not to mention the tsunamis that happened as well. So, Tyler, I just want people to realize, you know, live life now. It could end at any moment, and we have movies out there like Armageddon and Deep Impact. You know, some people think if that happens, we have the technology to send people up there and blast it apart. But tell us in reality, if a comet 
that size comes towards Earth, what are our options? The short answer is none. The longer answer is it all depends upon what warning we have. The farther out you can spot a comet or an asteroid, the longer you have before it could be a danger to us, and therefore the more options that you have. If you were, could somehow discover an asteroid or a comet, say, a few years away, from the day of impact, then you could potentially just a tiny nudge would be perhaps all it would take to put that comet or that asteroid on a slightly different trajectory. So that three years later, each time as it looped around the sun, that third time around as it came towards the earth, that the buildup, the tiny incremental buildup of that one initial little nudge would be enough for it to just pass by the earth instead of to actually hit. But currently, we don't have the technology to send something to an asteroid to nudge it, to land a rocket on an asteroid or a comet to push it away. We've only sent a couple missions, a couple unmanned spacecraft missions to comets and asteroids to even see what they look like. And it's one of the reasons why we are doing this right now. There's a spacecraft called Rosetta launched by the European Space Agency that's about to drop a small little package, a little payload onto a comet in order to see what it looks like as it approaches the sun and begins to burn off its gases, ices, and to form the tail that we all see and attribute to a comet and make some such beautiful objects in a clear, dark evening sky. So this is something we need to learn more about because sadly at the moment, if we should spot a doomsday asteroid or comet just a year away, there really isn't anything that we could do. And so some of the plans that have been proposed talk about things like mitigation. If it's going to be a small object, perhaps not as large as the one that killed the dinosaurs, then maybe given enough time, you could identify exactly where it would hit on Earth. And so you could perhaps try to evacuate people from that area. But that's small comfort and whatever happens will be global in its impact. A small object that might only devastate part of the American Midwest and so only be a death knell for anyone left living in Kansas or Nebraska would completely destroy the breadbasket of America. And so trying to survive after that, we would all suffer. This is not an easy thing to think about, and it's not a comfortable thing to ponder what life would be like afterwards. And so it's one of the reasons why it's important to have a network of telescopes dedicated to looking for these objects. And fortunately, there are a number of telescope groups that are doing just that. Back in the late 90s, after a comet impacted Jupiter, and every telescope on Earth was able to watch as this happened, the joke went around amongst my astronomy friends, that the number of people on Earth dedicated to finding these dangerous objects was smaller than the typical crew at an average McDonald's restaurant. So fortunately, that has changed, and the, the search needs to continue. We have been on location on the Grand Canyon with Dr. Tyler Nordgren, an astronomer at the University of Redlands. Thank you so much, Tyler, for talking with me on this trip and telling us about the sky at night and also taking time to do these interviews. It's been my pleasure. Tyler, let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. When you're in the outdoors, when you're away from home, when you're away from the lights of your house and your neighborhood and your city, 
The thing to do, to really enjoy, is to remember that the light that you create, the light that you project from, say, your lantern or your headlight, that light travels forever. A candle flame, a candle flame, a single candle flame seen at a distance of one mile is just as bright as the brightest stars in the sky. So when you get into camp and you set up your lantern, remember that that light is blinding compared to the stars and it's blinding to everyone around you. So be a good steward of the night sky and only use as much light as you really need and put a shade on top of that lantern so the light goes down. So it goes down onto your table, it goes down onto your cooking surface, it helps you see the rocks around your camp. The next thing I would recommend is quiet. The rocks, the stars, the sound of the river, the sound of the birds and bats, those are things that really evoke a sense of place and wilderness. So once again, the wilderness experience is more than just seeing the rocks. It's hearing the wind in those rocks. It's seeing the stars rising above those rocks. And then the last thing to be a good steward of the night sky is to share that experience. When you go home, think about what you can do at home to help bring a little bit of that starlight wilderness back to you. Consider turning your lights off at night, putting a shade on the ones that are outdoors, and helping bring a little starlight home. Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online by visiting trail1033.com. The Trail Less Traveled is also a podcast available on all platforms, and you can view the full show archive, photography, and learn more about our outreach programs by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, I encourage you to do something for Mother Earth and also get outside, shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I want to thank our sponsor, New West Knife Works. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knife Works founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knife Works culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful 
as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com.